Hello and welcome to episode 107 of Beekeeping at Five Apple Farm. This is Lee. I am so glad you have joined me today. Welcome back and hello to you all in 2023. Thank you for your patience while I took a winter break. It was wonderful. Spent a lot of time reading and thinking about bees and dreaming of this coming season. We are just on the cusp of starting bee season for real here in the Blue Ridge Mountains. I'm in Garden Zone 6, but about 3,000 feet in the Appalachians. So that gives us a climate that has a tricky spring. We get this beautiful early spring like much of this part of the country has had. And then it snaps back to winter. And it has literally done that this week. It was beautiful. The flowers are blooming. The maples are blooming. Even at my elevation, bees were going crazy, bringing in all this pollen. And then, boom, yesterday we got an ice storm. Yesterday, early morning, woke up and it was raining, I thought. And then I look out and go, wait a minute. There were ice crystals hanging on everything and dripping and getting longer. And then they froze. So the trees and the plants were covered lightly with ice. They will be okay, but it wiped out a lot of maple bloom in my particular yard. I hope that the the maples are varied, and that is the, the good part of living in a mountainous place is that even if the maples at my specific elevation, my specific microclimate got wiped out by that ice, then just below us, if the bees fly downward a little bit, Hopefully, they will find some maple blooms that were unaffected. That's what I'm hoping. I'm very excited to start the podcast up again this year. I've been writing notes of things to share with you. As I mentioned before I took the break, I am actually working on a book for you guys. It started out, it was just going to be a booklet. It was just going to be a booklet of split techniques, my favorite split techniques, because they're You know, there's a million ways to split a beehive to make another beehive or to make several other colonies. But in a lot of the teaching and a lot of the things that are easily found online, there's just one or two that people do. People talk about, you know, the walk away. Oh, my God, don't get me started. (laughs) Not to be confused with the runaway that Ange Roll teaches, but the walk away. Ugh, just say no. And I'll explain a lot about why I'm not fond of that one in the booklet that is starting to grow into a very small book. So it's going to take longer than I thought, but I'm actually excited. And what's happening is as I'm getting into it, the challenge to me is to explain things to intermediate beginners. This book won't be for true absolute year zero beginners. But intermediate beginners, particularly those that are coming out of winter with an overwintered hive that survived. And I want to introduce people to these very cool split techniques. Things like the vertical split. You've heard me talk about a lot of these. The cut down split. The queen maker cut down split. The Mississippi split or the Doolittle split, which I ran across on uh, honeybeesweet.com. The nucleus split. The flyback split. The runaway split. There are just so many great ways to split that are smarter than some of the more, I won't even say basic, because a lot of the techniques that I'm going to talk about are just as simple, but they switch around some of the moving parts and that makes all the difference. And um, so anyway, I'm working on this booklet that's growing into a book. Since it is going to take longer than I anticipated, what I want to do is I want to share pieces of it as as I finish them with the Patreon community. If you've listened here long, you know that the reason why we're not stopping this podcast every few minutes 
for any words from our sponsors is because it is a people-powered podcast, and that happens through Patreon. So it's patreon.com slash fiveapple. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash fiveapple, F-I-V-E-A-P-P-L-E. And that is where, in addition to all the regular podcasts, those special supporters get bonus podcasts. I was pretty slack on those last year, but people stuck with me. And so I am determined to give you guys more special bonus podcasts this year. And in fact, I'm going to do a uh, series of tip or technique of the week. And that could be, it could be going into more depth about something I talked about in that podcast. It could be a link or a cool video that I've run across or a book I've read that I want to share something with you. But my goal is to have something every week up for the supporters to say thank you for keeping this podcast going for several years now. I appreciate every one of you. It really means a lot. Now, I know there are many of you who might want to support the podcast, but for whatever reason, can't do so right now, and that is totally fine. I will be producing the same free podcast here as I have been, and it thrills me if you want to listen to that. If you feel like leaving me a great review <laughs> on Apple podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast, then of course I would appreciate it because that helps other people find find it. So coming out of winter, this is such a tricky phase of the beekeeping year. For those of you who overwintered hives, it's the time of year that we're finding out how we did. You're finding out how many of your hives made it, how many of them made it through with flying colors and are about to be busting at the seams or may already be busting at the seams depending on where you are. And then those that just barely hung on by their little bee fingernails. I'm just kidding. I don't think they have fingernails. but And they're living, but they're very, very fragile. And then, unfortunately, many of us will find the hives that did not make it. If you only have a couple few hives and if you did not have any make it, I am so sorry. This is something that every beginner who only starts with a couple of hives is probably going to go through. It's like 99.9% .9 of beekeepers are going to go through exactly what you have gone through. Of course, there are some lottery winners, <laughs> you know, with everything. They happen at about the same rate. So we all know, we all know that there's lottery winners out there and then there's the rest of us usually. So if you are a lottery winner and you didn't do much at all to your bees over the fall and you just let them go on their own and they came through alive, then indeed you're a lottery winner. If you lost your hives, you're just a regular one of us, but I would ask that you use the disappointment to fuel your determination to figure out beekeeping. I think one of the main qualities of a long-term beekeeper is absolute grit, absolute determination, and then also curiosity. Curiosity, an honest curiosity about, okay, what went wrong? What was my role in that? And I'll start, I'll go first. I lost a lot of hives this winter. I had a bad feeling that I would. I had mentioned to y'all back in the fall that I'm like, mm, this is, I got a bad feeling because I was AWOL from my hives due to a health crisis back in the early spring. And it la that also lasted longer than I would have hoped. And so it was midsummer before I really got back into my bees. And as most of you know, if you wait till then, whoa, do you walk into a mess? And I had so many hives because the year before I had 100% survival over the winter. And so I came out with more bees than I knew what to do with. Then I was sick. A lot of them swarmed. 
um, that was kind of to be expected because I'm in a very um, wooded rural area. I wasn't too terribly concerned for the bees. I, I think there are quite a few hollow trees in, in our flight zone, but I was concerned for the beekeeper because I didn't know how that would how that would turn out. I thought in my mind, as I tried to console myself in my mind, that I wasn't able to get out there and do all the things that needed to be done with my so way too many for me to handle hives, I told myself, well, you know, a brood break is one of my most important techniques to knock back mites, to keep mites under control with a system of, of brood breaks that has worked for me now, this is starting my 13th year, of not using chemicals, but using close observation, careful tending care, and brood breaks. And I will add to that, um, good genetics, in my opinion. So for all those 13 years, I've been both bringing in new genetics from the, the best queens that I could find that might have the best chance to thrive in a chemical-free environment. So I'd done all that with good success. Like I said, the year before, had 100% survival rate, was feeling my oats, feeling very proud. And then I got sick and was out of commission. The bees completely got away from me in every possible way. But I thought, you know, with all those swarms, well, a swarm is nature's brood break. So I think that might be okay for the ones that actually survive the requeening, you know, survive the natural requeening process after a swarm. Well, they've had a, a good brood break, nature's brood break. So maybe they'll, maybe they'll do fine. And the, the snowball effect of everything that I was behind on from being out of commission a couple months, just rolled right over me in, in every aspect of life. So I went into fall and went into winter with that feeling of doom over my head because I had reached winter at the point that I tend to encourage all of you to do better before you get there. <laughs> and then I didn't. I just could not pull it together. And so as I told you, I thought it was going to be a rough winter. It was a rough winter for me, which is ironic because other than a brutal polar vortex that happened to us on the front end in mid-December, after that, we had a barely a winter barely to speak of. It was absolutely the earliest spring I've ever seen. And then it came, you know, briefly crashing down with the, the ice. And then we've got temperatures at night in the 20s, low 20s for the next few days. So that's the one-two punch of winter that's very common. So my winter was the second worst ever that I've had since starting in 2010. I can say it was 100% due to beekeeper neglect. I own up to that. I would urge you, if you lost hives and you know that you really didn't do much for them after the summer, um, you did, maybe you didn't do anything except take honey. Maybe you didn't do mite counts. You didn't do brood breaks, all those things that help keep the hives healthy. Maybe you didn't do them. And so you either skirted by lucky, which I've done some years, or the bill came due as it did for me. And so I came through with a survival rate, 40%. It's terrible, very sad and upsetting. I'm setting my aspiration to not do it that way again. That said, the bees I have left are a real treasure to me because they made it through despite a terrible beekeeper for last year. And those are bees that if I show up to be a good beekeeper this year, then I think they are really going to thrive. And that's what I'm going to do. Now, to keep on with the honest owning up, <laughs> I'm also going to have less hives this year because it, this is how beekeeping works. There are many things you can do to prevent that kind of outcome. The thing I would encourage you to do is if you had a bad winter like me, then take an honest inventory 
of your beekeeping last year, what went wrong, what you could do better. Now, inevitably, in spring, there are going to go be people that are like, my bees were fine, and now they're all dead or gone, so I must have had colony collapse. If you're not a commercial beekeeper, then you probably didn't have co- colony collapse. You probably simply had a colony that collapsed, most likely due to varroa. Not exactly due to the varroa, but really usually due to the, if they die in the winter, that's usually died due to the viruses that were introduced by uncontrolled varroa. And they pretty much dwindle out. They dwindle down to a smaller and smaller cluster until they can't keep themselves warm and can't do the functions of the winter cluster. So if you have a dead out, hive that didn't make it, you go in and maybe there's this tiny, tiny handful of bees, you know, in the tiny little sad ball. That is most likely the effect of the viruses associated with Varroa. If you have a colony that was like huge, like a huge colony, bees on lots of frames, and now they're all dead, then they may have starved out. But those tiny little pitiful clusters, or even some hives will be so empty, it looks like they're all gone. But if you look around, there are some dead bees in there, and probably just predators and ants and everything else have have toted the the dead bees out. But I, I urge some fearless inventory on your part to figure out what might have gone wrong and just set your mind to do it different this year. If you have to go about finding more bees, I'm very sorry about that because that's, that's the biggest bummer. And that is the, that's the part I have been a lottery winner on my really bad years of having enough stock that survived to go forward with at least remnants of my genetic pool. Though it would be completely possible for me to lose all my bees on a given winter, I hedge that bet by having more than five colonies. <laughs> I read something, and I don't know I don't know enough about math to know if this is literally true, but it was a presentation on the wisdom of keeping a few nucleus colonies in your yard sort of on the side to be basically spare parts for the rest of your hives for spare queens or spare brood or whatever you need it, spare comb to be drawn, all those things. I heartily agree with that. But the speaker said that a math whiz buddy of his had, had done the math and it and said that if you had at least three hives and two nukes or five hives, then the odds were very low that you would come out of winter with zero hives. And so I don't know if that's literally true. But it is a good reminder that if you have fewer than five hives, you really have to keep up a high level of vigilance on your hives. So anyway, if you did lose all your bees, please try to figure out what went wrong, be really honest, and maybe take a look at your management techniques. If you did mite counts and did treatments and you still lost them, then you might want to look at things like following up with a mite count after treatment to see if it worked or doing mite counts more often to see how you're doing. You might try using, with the, idea, with the idea of the IPM ladder, multiple ways to address the mites. You might try brood breaks, you know, making some splits where the hive makes it, where the colony makes its own queen. You may try a different treatment, one of the other organic treatments. You may try it at a different time, like some people do some of the natural acid treatments right after a split when there's no brood to speak of and et cetera, et cetera. There's just tons of material out there. There are many people having great survival using just the organic acids. And if you're not having great survival, 
I think the the angle to go at, one would be to improve your beekeeping technique by working with bees in other people's yards, work with experienced beekeepers, try to mimic some of the things they do. And then as you get to where you can do that effortlessly, then you have the skills to wing it and do some things on your own as you understand bees better. But the bottleneck that I see with new beginners over and over and over, it actually becomes discouraging after a while, is that beginners start out with a bunch of enthusiasm and they're two hives and they're going, but they don't want to use chemicals. And so maybe they don't do mite counts or they're, or they're hesitant to work with their bees. So they're like, I'm going to become a hands-off beekeeper, which is not really a thing. <laughs> you're either a beekeeper or you're hands-off. And if you're hands-off, you know, I recommend leave the bees in the trees to themselves and just plant lots of blooming trees and shrubs. And that way you will go so much further to helping the bees than keeping them and letting them die every year. And I just put that out there. If you, if you don't like doing actual beekeeping, there are alternatives. There are ways to help bees that do not involve beekeeping. So if you lost them, you want to look, unfortunately, sadly, <laughs> repetitively, you want to look at your mite management techniques because really it's virus management. What it turns out to be is virus management. And as we all know so acutely after the past several years, it turns out to be an important thing, this virus management. So look at that. Look at your beekeeping techniques. Did you accidentally kill your queen on one of your final fall inspections, in which case that would make them dwindle down? Did you accidentally let them run out of food? It's easy to do. That is one of the best mistakes to fix, though, because there's such an easy solution, and that is make sure they don't run out of food. I love that one because that is so within the realm of the doable. If I just am attentive and I go out there and check the weights on the hive, then, hey, I'm, I'm doing well. And finally, if you did lose all your bees and you're getting more, you might want to see if you can upgrade the genetics of the bees you're getting. When anybody has to resort to buying packages, Unfortunately, you're probably getting the lowest common denominator of bees. It is quite challenging to get a get strong and healthy bees. Packages are really iffy. That depends entirely on where they came from. Nukes can also be iffy. It really matters where they where they come from. Where did the queen come from? Was the queen mated in your area? Probably not, unless you're getting that nuke later in the summer. If that nuke has a mated queen and it's too early in your area to have mated queens, then that queen came from a warmer climate. Might not be a problem if her genetics were, say, northern genetics, like a, but it could be a problem if she's got Florida genetics and you don't live in Florida. <laughs> or you don't, or you live in a place that's, whose climate is vastly different than Florida or South Georgia or all those warm places. So anyway, that's what I would encourage for those who lost bees. For those who overwintered bees, the newer beekeepers, the second year beekeepers, wow, are you in for a wild ride because there is nothing, there is nothing similar about the very first year of beekeeping, I'm just going to count that year zero because that's when you get your package or your nuke and you get them started and you try to get them to dry out the comb for the hive, etc. Then if they come out on the other side, healthy and strong, that hive is a beast like you have not gotten to see before unless you've spent quite a bit of time in other people's yards with established colonies. So don't freak out <laughs> because it is the first time you open an overwintered, busting at the seams, spring colony. It is a little bit daunting to see that many bees in that space and to also know that you've got to do something fairly soon to keep them in that space or else they're going to make themselves another colony somewhere out in the world. So coming out of winter is a tricky time, whether you're familiar with bees or not. 
because even those of us who are familiar with bees, for example, I know what I did wrong last year, last fall, last summer, and I own up to that. So my job right now at this very delicate part of spring in my part of the world, my goals are to, one, make sure that the bees don't run out of food. It gets really tricky now because they've started raising brood. At least here, they've started raising brood. So the energy needs of the colony have just skyrocketed. At the same time, the adult worker bees in the colony, the majority of them, are really old. They are the most geriatric of all bees, and they are trying so hard as their last hurrah to raise you up a new brood nest for the year. Actually, they're not doing it for us. They're doing it for their queen. <laughs> Let me clarify that. But either way, it's, it's, they're, they're stretched as thin as they will be stretched. The other danger at this time of year is because they they get that brood, they get that brood nest, but meanwhile, the adult population has been dwindling down. They're just dying off of old age, even in a best case scenario. The new bees that are emerging at first, it's a very small number. And what will happen, unfortunately, sometimes is if they... If they get if they go wild and get a ton of brood in there, but yet the population is not big enough to cover it, and then you get those terrible, you know, 20-degree Fahrenheit nights like we have coming up, it is possible to lose hives because they won't leave the brood. They are spread too thin, and they won't enter a cluster tight enough to save themselves because they are determined to save that brood. That sometimes happens. I hope not. I haven't removed any of the insulation from my hives, and this week I'll be very glad about that because they will have the best chance of staying toasty warm as I can give them. Meanwhile, I am keeping an eye on their food stores because it can change very rapidly. After our early faux spring that got us all so spoiled to the warm weather, then it, it went back to kind of normal chilly spring. Then there are day, there have been days at a time that due to wind, chill, and rain, the bees don't, don't get to get out and forage for pollen. There's not a lot of, not a lot of nectar out there, but if they're lucky, the maples will give them the nectar to start that brood nest and the pollen as well to start it. That's one reason why seeing all my frozen maple blooms just just about broke my heart because I know now they'll have to fly further uh, to get that. I will be helping them out some with some pollen substitute offered in pollen feeders. I may even make some homemade pollen patties because I've got some loose pollen left over that will be out of date by fall. And so I thought, well, I might make them up some homemade pollen patties. And that is with a high rate of protein to help them with brood rearing. Obviously, I want to expand my apiary again after going down this winter, but the changes, I'm not going to expand as much as I could, but I'm going to try to expand as much as I should for my, my time limitations. It's still a little bit too chilly here to easily feed thin syrup. That's one-to-one -one sugar syrup. If you're in a warmer place, then you're probably already feeding one-to-one -one sugar syrup. For the newer beekeepers, if you do that, basically you're 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 wanting to just trickle feed by that a little at a time. You are, want to give them the equivalent of nectar in the hives on the on the day that days that they can't fly and get it themselves. If there's still honey left in the hive from the winter, that's good. They are less likely to starve, but it's still not ideal. You know, ideally when they have got their brood nest going, I mean, ideally in um, areas that I think are easier on the bees, area that once it becomes spring, it stays spring, which is not the mountains. 
then, you know, once all that pollen and nectar starts up, then it's a, a smooth acceleration to late spring, that the heyday of bees, late spring and early summer. But if you're in a more challenging area, then the back and forth can be tricky. The bees are at risk not only for just plain out starving, but they're also for risk. They can actually have a lot of honey in there, but they've made a big brood nest. Now they're feeding all that brood. And honey is not the ideal food for them to work with for their brood. It is emergency winter food. The ideal spring food for a brood nest is nectar. Or in short of that, we manage some with one-to-one sugar syrup. The trick with sugar syrup, as the experienced beekeepers know, is the bees cannot take it if the syrup temperature is too low. And that's somewhere in the 50s. I'm not sure about the exact number. But worse than that, once that syrup gets cold, like you put it on there, you know, it was warm. You put it on there. It was a warm day. That night it gets cold. The syrup gets all chilled. Well, in a best case scenario, like if you have it in a mason jar, then the bees just can't take it. But in a worst case scenario, if you have one of the bulk feeders that have a lot of feed in it in a in some type of pool-like setting, so by I'm talking about like a hive top feeder or a cap and ladder frame feeder or uh, so the little round or square rapid feeders that kind of have the bunt pan thing in the middle, all those can drown bees when the syrup is cold. I don't understand what seems to possess them to all dive into cold syrup. I don't understand it, but I've killed many a bees with bulk feeding syrup when the temperatures drop too low for them to take it. And for, I don't know, whatever reason, they decide to swim with the fishes and they're in it. So the safer feeders are, I mean, my favorite one is just a mason jar with tiny holes in the lid um, set on top of the inner cover, on that hole in the inner cover, and then with a box around it. Because that one, at least in a worst case scenario, they just can't take it, but they're not going to drown they're not going to drown. Now, why would I do that on a hive maybe that has honey left over? And and that would be my surviving hives with a couple of exceptions. They all are still still have good weight. That's one thing I did right. <laughs> but but what can happen and I've had this happen in past years is if I get like a week or two of cloudy, windy, chilly, rainy weather that the bees can't get out and get fresh nectar, then it seems to create a, a stress sequence that can lead to them getting things like chalk brood, European fowl brood, not to be confused with American fowl brood, but European fowl brood, which can be treated. Anyway, those those are some brood diseases that show up in early spring. And one time years ago when I had some European fowl brood in my yard, the bee inspector, Lewis, explained to me that... Um, that feeding them is the first step. If you see weird larvae and you're like, oh gosh, then the first step is to to feed them. And sometimes if you catch it early enough, just relieving that stress will cause it to go away. And I, and I hope it does because it's a, it's a more involved process to, to get rid of it. If not, especially if you don't use antibiotics, which I have some podcasts on that. And I did get through European fowl brood. I think it was like in 2016 or 17. I had a bad a bad spring experience with that, and I actually used some of the shook swarm techniques that are used in Europe, where the antibiotics apparently are not allowed. And so I looked up that and used it to get through it. But what I'm saying now is try to avoid that, that if you do have a hive that you happen to know that they have got a big brood nest going, and then you see a couple of weeks of weather that's just not going to be ideal for flying, you, if the temperatures allow, 
putting on a jar for some trickle feeding can help. Now, if you're in one of the colder areas of the country that, that just feeding with syrup is simply out of the question, that's a question you would need to ask with your local mentor, experienced beekeepers, or your beekeeping club. If you're still in the colder zones and your bees are looking light on food, they're feeling light on food, they're starting to build some brood and you're starting to get worried, then you can still use the emergency feeding just like in winter, the carbs. That's what they need. So that would be things like sugar bricks, fondant, winter patties, which are also patties, but not to be confused with pollen patties. They do have a little pollen in them, but the winter patties are about, I don't know, 95% carbs, and that's what they need for a, sh a sugar diet, you know, to, for the, the bulk of their diet. That, that kind of takes the place of nectar. It does not, but it kind of does the best we can if we're in an emergency feeding situation. Candy boards, that type of thing, all those things can still be used in late winter to provide the simple carbs for the bees, the sugar that they, that they need. If they either don't have natural nectar out in the world or like so often here in the mountains, there's tons of natural nectar out in the world, but the weather is not appropriate for the bees to fly and get it. And either way, the effect is the same. So keep an eye on the feeding. Keep an eye on their stores. You don't want to let the, the cupboard get completely bare. If you happen to have some honey frames that you Robin Hooded back in the winter or fall, you took off honey and you're like, I'm not going to extract all of these. I'm going to put some of these in my deep freeze in case I need them next year. Then if you thaw them, get them back to room temperature, then you can stick those in the hive and at least they have some weight. Now that doesn't take care of the nectar, the need for nectar or the need for pollen, but it at least they won't flat out starve. So this episode is really just a hello, a hello for the year, a welcome back, cheering you on. Even if the winter was bad, I am cheering you on. Don't give up. If you have friends that lost all their bees, they're very discouraged, they don't know if they're going to do it anymore, be a voice of encouragement. Encourage them, if they're willing to learn beekeeping, to keep going. Because the bottom line is, we really don't need any more beginner beekeepers. Now let me finish. Of course, every new beekeeper starts out as a beginner. There's no way to bypass that phase. But what we don't need are more beekeepers that start and finish as beginners. That is unfortunate. It's such a, it's a waste of bees. It's a waste of their time and money because when you go into bees, hopefully, hopefully you've done the research, you know it is hard as heck. It's really fun. I mean, I would, there's pretty much nothing I would rather be doing out there in the yard other than gardening than working with my bees and reading about bees and pondering on bees and talking to people about bees. But I will not kid you. It is hard work. It requires dedication. It requires diving deep into both the the book learning, and I mean that in whatever form is comfortable for you, whether it's um, videos or conversations or actual books or whatever. So there is a, there is the knowledge component and then every bit as important and at moments more important, is the hands-on component. There are skills in beekeeping that cannot be learned without the hands-on beekeeping. It is very challenging to do that with your own hives, especially if you only have a couple. But still, it's hard to get the experience you need with that because if you mess with the bees to the extent that your skills need it, then that's harmful to the bees because they don't need to be messed with quite that much. And this is where it comes in so handy to work in groups, little collaborative, cooperative groups of beekeepers is one of the happiest things. And a total surprise to me in my beekeeping years. I, I didn't really, I, I am pretty much an introvert. 
okay, let, I'm a hermit. <laughs> I'm, I'm a hermit. But but anyway, the the great surprise is the beekeeping friends that I have had. They have saved my butt many a time with a piece of equipment that I desperately needed, with an extra nuke that I needed at that moment. Maybe I needed a nuke on deep frames. All I had was a nuke on medium frames. And for whatever trick riding I was doing at that time, I needed them on medium frames. Well, I've traded for nukes on deep frames. And I've traded nukes that I raised for beekeeping equipment that I needed. And that collaboration and cooperation with your fellow beekeepers will turn out to be one of the most satisfying parts of beekeeping. And I say that with with true surprise, that that turned out to be true. But as for all the joy of the hands-on beekeeping, the joy of the beekeepers turns out to be just as lovely. So hang in there, encourage others. If you know of people in your area or your beekeeping club that really tried their best, they showed up for the meetings, they read the books, they they tried to learn everything they could, and they still lost all their bees. If you were having a great winter, if you came through with more bees than you know what to do with, then please set your mind to learning how to make nukes to give or sell to those beekeepers. And even better, if you know of young beekeepers, beginner, starter beekeepers, like very young ones, then help them. Help them get started by inviting them to your yard. If you're experienced, you have got even, and when I say experienced, even if you are in your fourth or fifth year of active beekeeping, I'm going to take that back because I happen to know somebody and I hope she's listening right now because she's the one that prodded me to do this podcast today, even though obviously I'm all over the place and my topic is not well developed, but she urged me to get back on the horn and do this podcast. She only has, she and her husband, I think only have two winters of beekeeping experience, but they are rip-roaring, doing so great, helping other beekeepers, collaborating with other beekeepers and and as I thought about it, I believe one of the secrets to their success has been being engaged with other people's bees, other people in their yards, and being willing to show up and help people out. All that gives you exposure to hands-on beekeeping skills, and, and they're pretty much superstars in that department. And I would urge all of you to to do that if you are, maybe you're a hermit like me, <laughs> and maybe the thought of interacting with a bunch of other humans is kind of gives you a feeling of dread. Well, try to find some other beekeeping humans that you like and that you feel comfortable around, that you feel comfortable asking questions, and try to become their beekeeping friends. If you're doing pretty good and you just you you need more skills, but maybe you have a club that maybe the the club is just full of people in one camp or the other of beekeeping. If you've been to a beekeeping meeting, you know what camps I'm talking about. <laughs> and I don't care which one you're in, but if you're adamant and fundamentalist about either camp or whatever, you know, you're fundamentalist about, I don't know, orb-shaped beehives, whatever, then you're missing a lot. If you are locked down in your mind, in your camp, you're missing a lot. Because what I have really found is I have learned something from every successful beekeeper that I've interacted with. Many of them, we have nothing in common. I mean, nothing other than we keep bees. And for some reason, we have a connection. Maybe they keep bees in ways that I can't stomach or I'm not willing to do. But I have learned tremendous amount about beekeeping on every other subject other than that one, like maybe the treatments they use or the commercial techniques that they use. I don't need to know those because that's neither of those are me. 
But if they've got 20 years of beekeeping experience, my goodness, they are a wealth, a treasure, an encyclopedia of knowledge. And I'm willing to look over. I'm willing to look over that we don't agree on politics or how we dress, or we might not agree on what makes a good beehive or what makes a good beekeeper or what makes a good meeting. We may not agree on anything, but if they have knowledge and experience and even better yet, if they have a deep wealth of uh, of tinkering and experimenting with bees, I want to figure out a way to hold my mind in a way that I can interact with them and learn what there is to learn. And then the stuff that is just not for me, I just let it go. Now, I might dwell on it and fuss about it in my head a little bit on the way home from the bee meeting, but after that, I'm fine and I'm thankful for what I learned from them. So I really encourage that technique of opening your mind and learning from everywhere. With that thought, that's hopefully positive, I'm going to leave you for today. I'm not even sure what I'm going to talk to you about next week. If you have ideas of things you urgently need to hear about, drop me a line, blueridge714 at gmail.com and say, hey, do a talk on whatever, whatever. And if it's something I know about, I will try my best. And if it's something I don't know about, well, that might give me a reason to dive into the books and discover something new. And I would thank you for that. So I'm cheering you all on. Hang in there. Keep up the good work. Don't drop the ball when you're so close to the goal line. By that, I mean keep an eye on that your bees don't run out of food and that you're giving them enough space to expand, to not feel swarm pressure too early all the time, not giving them too much space that they can't keep warm. And if you haven't called your your mentor yet, give them a call. Tell them what the situation was. Own up to it. Ask them how their bees are, how 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 they did. Talk to everybody you can about that and see what you can learn from it. All right, I'm signing off. I am so thrilled to be back here with you, and I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.